I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing Ed Goas, nationally renowned pollster and political strategist and co-author of the new book, A Question of Respect, Bringing Us Together in a Deeply Divided Nation, which Ed co-authored with his business colleague, Celinda Lake. The book came out on November 15, 2022, and we did the interview in front of a live audience in Dallas on December 5th, 2022. Enjoy. a special guest today, a great friend of John Shackelford's. Uh, Ed is a political veteran of Washington, D.C. of over 40 years. Don't hold that against him. He grew up in Oklahoma. Uh, and Ed has done everything from run congressional committees to presidential committees to be a political strategist and to be uh, one of the top political pollsters. And interestingly enough, his partner for many years in the polling business is a woman named Celinda Lake, who is the co-author of this wonderful book that just came out last week. And I looked it up on Amazon this morning, and as far as the e-books go, it's number one in communications and media studies, number one in elections, and number one in campaigns. So it's off to a very good start, and we hope this breakfast that everybody, after you hear what Ed has to say and get to know him and have a chance to read the book. We can all be ambassadors for this important cause that Ed and Celinda have written up so well. So Ed, welcome to Dallas. Thank you. And, uh, Thank you. We're glad you're here. And when I'm introduced as, a, as an Okie, uh, that's a good reception from Texans. <laughs> yeah. So, Ed, let's, let's talk about uh, the fact that what I think makes this book so special is that you wrote it with your business partner, and you historically have been a Republican, and she historically have been a Democrat, and yet somehow, some way, you've been able to work together these many years to have this uh, major uh, poll, the Battleground Poll, which has won national awards, highly respected. You can look inside your book and see the who's who in American politics who have endorsed it. So tell us about the partnership with Ms. Lake, a Democrat, how you work together so well, and in particular, tell us about what the battleground poll is. Okay. So um, the battleground poll, um, we actually met each other for the first time in 1990 in Hungary. We were both sent in to uh, oversee the democratic elections, the first democratic elections there and found out that we were both pollsters, so we started talking. Um, we moved later that day to a piano bar in Pest. Uh, most people don't understand Budapest is actually two cities. And so we were over there, and we got into a conversation about the national polling and uh, how misleading it was with where they had two pollsters because they watered down everything. So the unique thing was that we decided to uh, write a separate analysis. Um, we didn't see each other's analysis till the night before we released it to the press and did a press conference. Um, and through the years, one of the benefits of that is we weren't fighting over what the response should be. We did each other's response. And I think through that, we gained a respect for each other um, for the talent that she had in reading numbers and the same on my side. Um, one of the things, reasons why we did the cover that we did, I grew up a military brat. My dad used to tell me stories about the Korean War, which he fought in, the, about the soldiers having to sit back to back against the hordes coming over the, the hill, and they had to depend on covering each other's back. And we had covered each other's back so many times over the years that we decided to put that on the cover of the book. Uh, the last interesting thing about Celinda is she grew up on a ranch in Montana as a Republican, um, I grew up as a Catholic who I thought I was supposed to be uh, a Democrat. Um, uh, in fact, uh, one of the stories I tell is I was at Fort Hood, a young, actually in grade school, 
um, and uh, was supposed to go see John Kennedy, who was going to review the troops the morning. He was in Dallas in the morning. He was coming to Fort Hood that afternoon, and he didn't make it uh, because he didn't make it uh, beyond Dallas. Um, and that was one of the beginnings of, of my work in politics. I, I actually worked my first campaign in 1964 when I was 12 years old uh, for uh, for um, Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson. I, I had trouble getting it out there for a second. Um, there are a lot uh, of people who strangled on that name <laughs> through the years. And and um, was adopted by kind of four college girls who, you know, poor little kid, his dad's in Vietnam, and uh, they taught me a lot and kind of pulled me in. So talk about the battleground pole. What, what exactly does it aspire to do? What does it do? How, how does it use its results? Um, we, uh, we basically, um, we, we just finished our uh, last one last week. Um, that we have done. We've done over 800,000 interviews over the years. Um, and again, if you, if you look at polling for real, polling has good news and bad news for both sides. So what we did over the years is bring out the good news and the bad news over the years. Um, and so we've, we've looked very, very closely. There's other things I can talk about in terms of when we talk about polarization. Um, one of the things that uh, probably is most important on what we do, is that we don't ask a question, are you conservative, moderate, or liberal? Um, these polls that come out that say that 40% of the country is moderate, uh, they have it off a little bit. It's a safe haven. People on a, on a survey will go there saying, I'm a moderate, don't ask me any tough questions. Um, what we do is we let them volunteer if they're moderate. In 30 years of polling, we've never had more than 8% say I'm a moderate. Um, but we register that if that's what they volunteer. But then we look at conservative and liberal and ask, are you very conservative and very liberal? And what we found over the years is those that are very conservative and very liberal are only 30% of the electorate. So really the somewhat conservative, somewhat liberal and volunteer moderate is really the center of America. And that's 67% of the country. And I think that's one of the things we've gotten off on is our politics have been so geared at the two extremes, we're, we're polarizing around that, as opposed to playing to the, the center of America. Mm -hmm. Now you talk about you and Ms. Lake have now become part of the Georgetown Institute of Politics and Public Service, which is led by a gentleman named Mo Elethy, who wrote the foreword to your book. So tell us about this Georgetown Institute. What, what is it? trying to do? What are you doing with it in hopes of turning things around on polarization? Right. It, it's essentially what we're seeing pop up all over the country. Uh, there's, for example, there's a great one down at Houston um, of civility institutes. Um, and I think there is a sense amongst the colleges in the, in the country that there is a need for that discussion. There's a Biden Institute up in Delaware. Um, the thing I liked about this institute is it's about politics and public service. And today, you know, when, when I first came to Washington working on the campaign side, uh, we all considered ourselves to be public service. Today, you would be surprised how many members of Congress, how many members of the well, Senate, uh, and more importantly, how many staff members for these congressmen and senators no longer see themselves as public servants. They see themselves as political. Um, and it's part of that polarization that's been going on. I did a fellowship at, at um, Georgetown in 2018 um, on civility, which is what led to wanting to do the book or the idea of doing the book. Um, and the reason why I went there, particularly when they asked me to do, do it and do it on civility, um, was because they emphasized public service, which I think we don't do enough. Um, maybe we need to demand it more of our public servants. Uh, but we don't talk about it enough that they're public servants. It's not all about politics. Now, the title of your book, A Question of Respect, is obviously the central theme about there being a lack of respect, both each side toward each other. And you say that without some sense of mutual respect, it's impossible for people to find common ground. And today, you say, we all have a decision to make. 
whether to build up or start building a foundation of mutual respect or continue to live in a fractured society. So if you're a betting man, which side's <laughs> going to win? Um, uh, I'm an optimist, um, and, and I see signs in the data that, that there's a real yearning for uh, us to get to a more respectful time. We started off, quite frankly, to write about civility and came to the conclusion that civility is just the language of respect. And so we switched uh, from the civility to focusing on respect. Um, and I think there's a deeper thing that we have to think about as a country. Um, I, was, um, I was raised to respect this country. Um, my father, uh, when he was young, was walking home after serving mass uh, one morning as an altar boy and saw the smoke coming up from Pearl Harbor. And from that day on, all I ever wanted to do was go in the military. And I remember being uh, seven years old, 1959, in the middle of the Atlantic on our way to his first assignment in Germany, when the news came that Hawaii had been made a state. He had already won a Bronze Star in Korea, won two more at two times into Vietnam. And he pulled out of the suitcase um, an American flag. And we sat there in the middle of the Atlantic and sewed that star on the flag. Um, he also um, had a uh, cigar box. I thought maybe he had toys in it or candy in it. And I asked him why he had a cigar box. And he said, oh, your mom and I plan on having more kids. Now, at seven, I didn't understand the connection between cigars and having kids. Um, uh, and a year and a half later, uh, my brother was born in Frankfurt, Germany. And he shows up with a cigar box. And he asked for the head nurse. Um, now, back in those days, they didn't allow men to go back in the delivery room. And the nurses were all women. And quite frankly, the, the, the nurses in the military could probably beat anyone in this room nine out of 10 times in arm wrestling. Um, and he said, I want to see the head nurse. And when she came out, he said, there's dirt in this box from America. And I want you to put it under the mattress because I want my child to be born on American soil. And... One of the things that we ran into, and I didn't get into it on the book too much, but respect for the country is down too much, uh, down a great deal. And I think it's a shame because it's hard to respect. I was raised to respect everyone. It's not about color of the skin. It's not about gender. It's not about anything, it's except that if you are an American, you deserve my respect. And I think that's one of the things we've lost in this country. And uh, I think we can get back to it. Well, you talk about because of what you've done at Georgetown and the, and the substantial amount of time in the last couple of years you spent with young people, that that helps fuel your optimism. How do you think, the, based on your experience and in interviews, young people under 30, how are they going to make the decision about the future, whether to live in a culture of mutual respect or live in a culture of division? Well, we, we've been asking a question for several years of, do you think the youth is the future in this country? Um, and we get a very high response. We get from different responses than what you might expect. Uh, young people all say, yes, you know, we believe we can be the future in terms of more respect. Surprisingly, seniors are the second highest in terms of believing the youth uh, can be our future. Uh, the one group that is upside down negative are 33 to 44 year olds, the millennials. Um, and all of us have had to deal with millennials in recent years. Um, you may understand a little bit why they're at that point. Sorry. Um, <laughs> um, but um, uh, we kind of got into the book uh, believing that we were going to end with a chapter on hope. And we thought youth would be part of it. Um, and uh, one of the things I think we did well in the book is we wrote all nine chapters first. And one of the things unique about the book you'll see is we talk about the problems in a we voice, Lynn and I, but we talk about the solutions in an I voice so that we didn't have to come to the same conclusion on that. Um, and I think there is a lot of openness about where the real solutions are. But we wanted to finish all nine chapters before we wrote this chapter of hope, because we didn't want to be Pollyannish in our chapter of hope. We want to see how big a wall we really felt there was out there. 
And so when we got to looking at, at, at the youth, we started doing some interviews, uh, doing some focus groups. And the one surprise that threw us a little bit is that the young people were very focused on we'd like to see more respect, I think, with some of the problems we have with the internet causing some of the dissension out there. I think they are the hope because they understand it better. But they, almost to a person, their response was, I believe in respect, but I give respect to someone if they give it to me first. And we came to understand that's not going to work. I mean, we all know that's not going to work. Um, I've spent a lifetime trying to be positive to people first and have found that that brings the best out of people. I believe in playing to people's better angels. Um, and I think that's part of what we kind of focus on in the book. And so that drew us to the conclusion. And I have the book dedicated to John McCain. I ran John McCain's convention. I would, I've worked with him very close um, through the years. Um, and came to believe that we need these civility institutes that are developing in the country to bring to the surface leaders that can light the way for the youth. We need a two-step process here. And I think that's now what I'm gonna be focusing on over the next couple of years, is how do we connect leaders that are willing to be leaders in terms of civility and in terms of respect and connect them with the youth in the country so that we can move forward. Yeah, you, you mentioned the time that when McCain was running against uh, Obama and a reporter asked him a question of negative on Obama suggesting inaccurate information or assuming inaccurate information. And McCain had the courage to stand up. That's not right. I don't believe that. And uh, it made me better understand your fondness for Senator McCain because, you know, obviously through the years he did some things that we weren't always happy with if, <laughs> on both sides. But be that as it may, but let's talk about the real drivers of today's polarization. And you go deep on these in the book. The first one is social media. Mm -hmm. What can be done to reduce the polarizing impact of social media? Um, let's take a step first before we get to that. Okay. And, and, and hold your microphone up just oh, so everybody... Uh, well, um, uh, something that I've tried for years, I mean, currently we represent 30 members of the House, 14 senators, and nine governors that we've gotten elected that are currently in office. On his political consulting business, uh, not, not on, on his polling business. He has two different businesses. Well, it's in our polling, uh, okay. that we do the polling for all those, those okay. members. And um, one of the things that has become obvious in the polling is that respect for institutions in this country is at an all-time low. And it's not just politics, it's religion, it's media, it's education, it's healthcare. Um, and a lot of the reason for that is a sense that they are not solving or addressing people's problems. And so voters have become very cynical towards all those institutions. Um, one of the things with problem solving, and I, I hate to say this about the members, I've tried to teach them this over the years, but they understand so few uh, steps or they, un they don't understand problem solving the way they should. They get wrapped up in the issue and don't pay attention to, to problem solving. Problem solving goes through four stages. And you of businessmen out here, you understand this. It, you talk about the problem, you talk about solutions, you implement solutions, and that creates a new set of problems. Our founding fathers were very smart and that they developed, that's what they developed the Senate for. Uh, when Jefferson asked Washington why, when he came back from being ambassador to France, why did you put in a Senate? And his response was, well, why'd you pour your tea into the saucer? And he said, to let it cool. Um, that's why we put in a Senate. Unfortunately, our Senate today doesn't let the issue cool. They let it go cold and they fight more over not getting attention for the opposite party as opposed to dealing with the direct issue. Um, the other thing is we've gone through that cycle so many times that we're dealing with problems created by our solutions and not dealing with the root problem. And voters sense that, and that has made them cynical, and that has made them, and the thing about cynical voters, I think they're being very protective by being cynical but they are most easily susceptible to demagoguery. And that's where you come into social media, you come into 
cable news, quite frankly. You come into super PACs. All of those play to that demagoguery. And we've had candidates in recent years that plays to that demagoguery, that plays to their cynicism. Um, and I think that's where the polarization has come. So, so what do we do about a social media that is driven by a desire to, and a media which sees their revenues go up the more polarizing they project their news? And, and what they're doing, and in, in cable news and the internet is doing the same thing. They're using algorithms to basically feed people the same information that they look at. I mean, how many of you at Christmas time gone and looked at some item and then the next three or four times you're on the internet, that item pops up even though you're not even in that area? That's what they're doing with our news. They're creating silos out there that, um, you know, I know Republicans, you know, don't like MSNBC or don't like CNN and people that watch CNN or MSNBC don't like people that watch Fox, but all of them are being fed the same thing. You read a story that has one line and whether it's true or not, whether it's misinformation or not, they get fed more and more and more of the same because it's all about eyeballs. It's all about eyeballs and profit. And one of the things we, we do raise when we get into media is where are the Walter Cronkites? Um, you know, one of the things when I was growing up, and I think many of you were probably the same, is my father came home every night. He was home by six o'clock. We sat and watched the news from six to 6.30. And then we sat down for dinner at 6.30 and we discussed the news. I did that as early as 10, 11, 12 years old. Um, they don't do that anymore. First of all, we don't sit down to dinner as much anymore with our families. Um, but the news is not about giving the news to people when they sit and watch it. It's about driving those eyeballs to watch them more often. Mm -hmm. In fact, on this point, one of the leading columnists at the New York Times, I won't say his name, told me that several years ago, the New York Times was at least pretending to be fair and balanced, but the revenues were going down. And so they made the business decision to slant it left, and lo and behold, the revenues started rising. And so as long as those economic incentives are in place, what can we do? Because after all, the, these are businesses, whether we're talking about newspapers, television networks, or anything else. Um, I, I think the only thing we can do is much like I'm saying with our political leaders, we need people to light the way for our youth. We need journalists that pride themselves um, in terms of being a journalist as opposed to just getting eyeballs. And one of the things that I think uh, we should discourage is on print media. The new thing anymore is how much do they get on the internet? How much do they get on TV to talk about what they're doing? And so they become more pundits than journalists. And I think getting some people that will stand up. Um, one of the people that wrote a blurb for us is George Will, um, who I think is a classic example of someone that has stuck with what he really believes in terms of being a journalist. Um, hasn't necessarily helped him at times, but he's, he's done well. Well, he's done well until the Trump era. <laughs> and when he went anti-Trump, he basically disappeared. And Fox didn't want him anymore. And he so, did. Um, and that happened to a lot of people out there um, in, in terms of Fox. Um, but that's where we can demand that, okay, are you a business or are you journalists? And, and I think we can have some journalists who will stand up and say, I came to this to be a journalist. I didn't come to this to be a seller of more of your product. Well, along this line in terms of, I want you now to put on your political consultant hat. And one of the points you make in the book is how these days, both parties seem to be paying a whole lot more attention to their base than to independence. With the idea we've got to drive the base, we've got to get them to the polls, we've got to get our voter percentage up. And to do that, they essentially ignore the independents. So when you're advising the many people in Congress and elsewhere who are your clients, are you telling them we need to pitch this message to the independents, or are you saying we need to pitch it to the base? Um, with, with my clients, uh, we say, you know, there, there's two things. There's motivate the base, or there's persuade to grow it larger. 
And I think we have fallen into a trap of uh, most of the campaigns are looking at the base because of the primary, as opposed to expanding uh, for the general election. Um, one of the things that uh, I say often, uh, the, the media people drive me nuts sometimes, when they're asked about their negative campaigns, they say, well, negative works. And there is some evidence that negative sticks with people more than positive does. But my response is always, so does positive work. You gotta try it once in a while. And uh, most of the clients that I work with, um, I work with because we do it as a two-way interview. Um, it's one of the things I think is the reason why we've done well, is that they look at us, do they want our talent? And we look at them because we know if we do our job, there are going to be times we'll give up time with our family and are they worth it? Um, and that has served us well. Um, I think that um, on the base, uh, the, there's an even deeper problem. Part of it is that campaign finance took away the power and the financing of parties. And so it changed their structure and their emphasis and they gave it to super PACs. And so all of a sudden, who was driving what was happening out there was not the party looking to expand the base, but it was the super PACs looking to intensify and, and get the base. One of the things that we didn't put in the book, um, and who knows, maybe it's the next book, um, but I think it is a major concern about where we are politically, is if you look at a scatter map, uh, there's a group that does a scatter map on the ideology of Congress um, every two years. And if you look at 1990, that scatter map is evenly distributed left to right, right to left, and even a little bit thicker in the middle. Um, if you look at 2020, it's on the two extremes. I would call it a barbell, but a barbell has to have a bar. And all there is a couple of dots in between. There's about 18 people that fit in that middle ground. Um, and when I explored maybe what the reason for that is, and we hear people talk about redistricting and a variety of different things. But the thing that really jumped out is in 1990, turnout in Republican primaries and Democrat primaries was about 35 to 40%. Today, in 2020, when I went back and looked, turnout in the primaries was between 15 and 17% in each. And so what has happened is that participation in the primaries have gone down and weakening the parties um, uh, what you have is the hardcore ideologues on the two ends, that 30% on two ends, are the only ones voting in the primary. And the people that are winning those primaries think they're supposed to fight for those principles as opposed to represent the total. And I think that's a major part, problem of what we have today. Um, there are groups out there. One uh, started here in, in Texas called Unite America. Um, but they're looking at things like ranked choice voting and things. Um, I've met, in fact, we have, you mentioned uh, the no labels and the, the groups that are developing out there. And this group, the leaders of that group has written um, blurbs promoting the book after reading the book. But what I keep saying to them is, it's not a different system. The question is, are you raising the, the participation at the front end? so that we are providing to the general electorate that maybe doesn't vote in the primary, are we providing to them candidates that represent the whole as opposed to just the extremes? And I think that's gonna be something that you'll be hearing more about over the next four or six years. Well, a subject that ties into what you've been talking about that we read about all the time is gerrymandering. Give us your perspective on where that is now and where it's going. Um, uh, this is where I'll get a little bit partisan um, because we talk about gerrymandering and redistricting in the book. And it was interesting in working with Celinda because we start talking through the problems and she starts explaining the Democrat position on, on redistricting. And there's two things that have occurred uh, that can happen in, in gerrymandering. One is you pack a certain group into one district or you can spread them in several different districts. Um, the Democrats over the years have been taking particularly the African-American vote and they put it in as many districts as they can to raise their Democrat uh, percentage. Um, but they blame us for redistricting 
and blamed us for it happening, even though it was them doing it. Um, and then what we did, and the real truth is, is in 1990, we began working, and I was part of working with that. We started working with the NAACP about, look, you only have, uh, at the time, they only had 19 African-American members of Congress. And so what we began saying is, let's work together, and instead of letting the Democrats spread it to as many places as they could, let's look at where there is an African-American vote, and let's concentrate that so you get better representation. And today, after 1990, 2000, we didn't work with them quite as much in 2020, but today they have 14% of Congress is African-American. So what we've done is we've gotten them their representation they were looking for, but we still got blamed for gerrymandering. I think the answer, at some point you have to just say, and there's some, some problems you have to look at this. I think just say, give it to the courts, let them decide, and at least take away the challenges of being accused of gerrymandering, even if you're not, so that we take the politics out of it. And I know there'll still be politics, but at least it's pointed at the courts and not pointed at the parties. Mm -hmm. Now, this issue of polarization came front and center during the last two and a half years in the midst of the COVID uh, epidemic, and you devote a chapter in the book to that, fights over masks, vaccines, shut-ins. So with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, knowing what you know about the great divide, and let's say you're a president or speaker of the house or whatever, what should have been done differently to minimize the polarization from COVID and instead create more of a sense of unity as the entire country fought against this uh, horrible plague? Well, it certainly is, is the, the, the first crisis we've had in this country, a variety of different types of crisis that we didn't unite as a country. And, and um, uh, you may know, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Um, I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump um, uh, for a couple of reasons. One is I, I know McCain did one particular thing later that got a lot of people angry with him uh, in terms of healthcare. But one of the things I respect and the reason why the book is dedicated to McCain is because of the respect my father had for him. Uh, my dad went to Vietnam twice McCain was in Vietnam both times he was there because he was in prison that whole time. Um, and um, one of the things I felt being around McCain that people didn't understand is that he saw humanity at its worst uh, as a prisoner of war. Uh, they broke his arm eight times uh, while he was a prisoner of war because his father was head of, the, I don't know if you know this or not, he was head of the Pacific Fleet. And... They wanted him to disavow what America was doing in Vietnam. And they said, and then we'll send you home. And his response was that he was going to be the last one to leave, not the first one to leave. And so once a year they came, they asked him again. He said no, and he broke his arm. they broke his arm. Every year they did it. Um, and they had other ugliness they did through the years. And I think that gave him a respect for people or an urge to want to show respect for people. And he at times he didn't quite show the respect the way he should have. But generally he did. Generally he did. And um, when we looked at the pandemic, and I think the blame is on both sides. We allowed the already polarized situation to be uh, militarized, quite frankly. And we allowed the country to develop sides over the issue. And it was a shame. I think everyone that was in Washington, not just Trump, not just Biden, not just the Speaker of the House or the leaders of the Senate, I believe everyone should be shamed for what they allowed to happen in terms of the pandemic. We didn't unify, we in fact divided and used that as an excuse to divide. And I think if anything, um, you know, the other reason why I didn't like Trump is when he first started running, I had two sons that were eight and 12. They're now 18 and 13. But I had a problem with the way he was acting out there 
Um, Kellyanne Conway called me once about three years into the uh, Trump administration, and we knew each other because we both did polling over the years and had even done some campaigns together. And she said, you said something positive about Trump. Are you going to get on the Trump train? And I said, Kellyanne, you know the story. I said, when I can put my arms around my two sons and point to Donald Trump and say, that's the kind of man I want you to be, um, then I'll get on the Trump train. But I don't think it's going to happen. And it hasn't happened. Um, it's interesting. Republicans ended up the campaign with about 60% of Republicans believing and following anything he would do, and about 30% of Republicans that found a safe haven of, I like what he's done, but I don't like the way he acts, uh, and then 10% that were never Trumpers. Um, there's been a shift over the last two years of 20% of those that believes everything he says to, I like his policies, but I don't like the way he acts. They are now a majority of Republicans. They are 50% of the Republicans. And I think he doesn't necessarily understand that that has happened, that it's not because of what he did policy-wise. It is what he did in terms of the way he acted out there. Uh, I never felt he was the disease. I always felt he was a symptom of the disease. And that's the thing I would encourage everyone, whether you're pro-Trump or anti-Trump, is that if you didn't like that time period and the polarization, we need to look at ourselves. We don't need to look at him and blame him. And I think that's ultimately the message of the book, that we can spend all day talking about polarizing politicians. But until each of us takes personal responsibility for showing mutual respect to people who we know look at political issues differently, then nothing's going to change. But let's now uh, take advantage of your uh, pollster expertise we're already talking about the 2024 presidential election. We're also talking about how much we need a leader who, in fact, is a unifier as opposed to a polarizer. We have a demonstrated track record of both Trump and Biden as being anti-unifiers. So who among the potential candidates do you see who has the potential to narrow the Great Divide? Um, I, I think there's many out there. Um, my wife is chief of staff for Joan Ernst from Iowa. And, and um, uh, I've been very impressed from the very beginning. I did Joni's uh, polling when she first ran, do her polling still today. Um, and I was the one that connected my wife with Joni uh, just because I saw her as someone worth, worth putting in the time she does. And she today is... Um, she's been with Joni for eight years. And in terms of longevity, she is number three in, on the Republican side. I mean, that's how short-lived the chiefs of staff are because the job is just that draining in terms of what's there. Um, there's other people. Tim, uh, Joni? Um, no, but I think she may. She was just moved to be policy director uh, of the Senate, which is the number three position in the Senate. Uh, on the Republican side. Um, I think she uh, will probably be looked at for VP. She was looked at in 16 for VP. Um, and I think that would be good. Um, and I think she's also, uh, she's the first uh, combat veteran to ever be elected to the Senate. And um, uh, I think she would also be interested in looking at defense uh, secretary and would be very, very good at it. Um, but there's others. Um, one of my favorites is from uh, South Carolina, Tim Scott. Um, the thing I love about Tim Scott is, I'm sorry for the Democrats in the room, um, but uh, he, the Democrats don't know how to handle him. They've tried to call him uh, to Uncle Tom. They've tried to call him all kinds of things and label him all kinds of things. And there's no label you can put on him. Um, and I love that. In fact, at one point, I suggested to... Uh, both he and Joni, that they should run as a ticket from the very beginning, uh, uh, Tim Scott and Joni, um, because it would have just thrown everyone off in terms of... of a woman and an African-American, wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> the Democrats wouldn't know what to do. Um, but um, there, there's others out there. I, I do think we may need, um, we may, may need one more presidential cycle to kind of wipe out the old guys. Um, and it may very well be Trump and Biden again. 
Um, Say it ain't so, Joe. <laughs> um, I, I hope the country can last through that uh, because it's going to be ugly uh, if it is the two of them. Um, I do think, and, and I've been saying this to the party leaders, and I don't know particularly if they're out there, um, but I, I, I do think that whichever party will elect a young candidate um, or nominate a young candidate. I'm not talking about younger, because at this point, that'd be someone in their 60s. Um, uh, I'm talking about a true young candidate um, that is charismatic, that is somewhat true populist, not a divide and conquer populist, um, but a true populist that is for the little guy. And there's a lot of Republicans that fall in that category. Um, I think we'll, we'll still... They will steal the majority of the country's heart um, for probably two decades. Um, we need a John Kennedy type um, uh, kind of person to step forward. Um, there was one who, um, even though I don't agree with his politics, uh, it was very interesting to see how he put the campaign together. And that was Mayor Pete. Um, he... Um, he um, started his campaign off with a rules of the road that was a, uh, we talk about it in the book, I'm sorry, um, rules of the road that every staff member he had, and it was really about respect and how you treat your opponents, how you deal with issues. And he had every volunteer in the campaign read it, but not necessarily sign it. And he, quite frankly, it was because of that that he won Iowa. Um, he kind of showed, but then it got into the politics of everything else, and then he, he fight, faded into the background. But I think someone that will approach it that way, that will play to people's better angels, I think, and, and not look at going after the base, but looking at going at the wider electorate, I think that's what the country needs. And I hope, personally, I hope it will be a Republican. Um, but I think, more importantly, we need it uh, to move our country back to a better place. I'm going to open the floor to questions. I know John Shackelford said he had a question. Well, I, I, I think knowing Celinda um, and going through the book thing and releasing the book, um, I've had to split her time because the Democrats are madly doing post-election studies, trying to figure out why it happened that way, <laughs> um, because they were surprised. Um, you know, if you look at my sense of the election from a Republican standpoint, uh, we overran our narrative. Uh, we, uh, quite frankly, the Senate ended up exactly where we thought it would be, which was it was going to be a coin toss. We didn't know exactly why certain things would move a certain way, um, but it ended up a coin toss. Um, uh, I was, I did the polling in both the senators in uh, four, four years ago, uh, or two years ago, um, and saw us lose the Senate. Um, because we were more talking about whether votes counted. And we had 285,000 Republicans who voted in that general election that didn't vote in the runoff, which cost us both those Senate seats and cost us control of the Senate. Um, in the House, um, we started the election believing that some of the gains, the 25 or so gains that would be more traditional, um, that we had already won 14 of those. Uh, because we had 14, we had a net gain of 14 in 2020, that in every one of those seats, the candidate ran ahead of Trump in the district, um, and we won the seat. We won all 14 of those again this time. So you start off saying, well, we've already done that, which we, our original thought in looking at what our possibilities were, was there. We then had a group that we knew we would do well. But then with the numbers, we got enthusiastic and we kept adding more and more and more uh, uh, districts on what our chances were. And so it was always kind of, well, there's 35 target 
uh, Democrat seats, they're in the toss-up, that if we win a, a third of those, that's going to put us at 25 seats plus. Um, they didn't come through. One of you talk about redistricting. One of the things people haven't talked about is that we won uh, 51% of the popular vote. The Democrats won 47%. And then independents got about 2%. And that's undisputed and Solenda acknowledges that? She does. Um, uh, what she doesn't want to talk about too much is that in the past, the Democrats always had a plurality. And then they accused us of, because they didn't have control, it was because of redistricting. Um, but I think it does raise a question, was the impact of redistricting, we focused a lot on New York that gave us some seats we didn't expect, but um, did redistricting actually hurt us out there more than what we thought? Um, so we're kind of looking at that by the numbers right now. The bigger thing that kind of jumps out, and we saw this in some of the statewide races, is the election deniers going down. Um, and one of the races... Otherwise that, known as the Trump crazies? <laughs> um, I, I don't say that. I try to be civil. Um, <laughs> um, the, um, uh, but clearly, clearly, um, the, the one place that you can really look at is everyone talks about Nevada. Um, Nevada was driven more by the, the governor's the gubernatorial candidate being a denier than what was happening uh, in on the Senate side. The race to look at is Nevada, where we won the governorship, but lost the Senate race over someone that started off the race with universal name awareness and very popular. Um, but he felt like he had to be a denier because Trump was going around endorsing candidates that were not deniers. Um, I did Langford's race uh, the whole time Langford was in in, in uh, Oklahoma. Um, he had a tougher race in the primary because Trump didn't endorse him. And I think the only reason why Trump didn't endorse him is that on January 6th, he was in the chair of the Senate. They broke up because they were fearful about their safety. And then when they came back and he started them up again, he was in the chair. And in Trump's mind, that meant he was on the other side. He was going forward with a proceeding that he wanted him to stop. And um, uh, so he didn't endorse, but we won a positive campaign and ended up winning by, by a big margin. Um, the one thing that really jumps out is on the House side. Uh, Trump went into um, uh, eight congressional districts in October in eight congressional districts, did rallies, his traditional rallies. Seven of those eight uh, we thought were going to win, and they lost by a small margin. Seven of the eight lost. They had Trump come in. So he did have an effect, effect at the end. Now, I will say on top of that, the Democrats made a mistake. Um, what we saw during the summer with the Supreme Court is we saw some movement back in the Democrats' direction, mainly because of intensity, not because of votes changing. Um, and when Biden did his um, speech in early September attacking MAGA Republicans um, and did it in a untypical way for him, it was very harsh, it was very negative, uh, it was almost screaming as opposed to his uh, more gentle soft talk that he, he tends to do. Um, some people say because he has dementia, I believe it's because he's a soft talker. Um, and... Um, we saw the numbers start coming back in our direction because those soft Republicans and ticket splitters that had begun moving a little bit back in their direction over the summer looked around and said, well, he's not talking about the economy. And if the choice is between Republican policies, not the character of Trump, but Republican policies, and you're being ugly, which is part of the reason why we took a step away, we're going back to what we really believe policy-wise. Um, when he did the democracy speech at the end, um, I'm teaching a class at Georgetown on campaigns and elections. And I had my students watch that speech. Um, and they wanted to know from me before I, uh, they said, what did you think? And my impression of the speech was it was a good speech. Um, but I thought it was 18 months too late. Where I was wrong 
is that speech combined with Trump going out there and being active in those campaigns in the final weeks pushed them back. Um, and so he undid the mistake he made in September. And that had an impact on the election. By the way, one of my criticisms for Trump at the end is that Trump had raised a lot of money during the last two years. And he was sitting on $100 million, $100 million in his super PAC. And he barely spent anything on these candidates. He thought he was helping them by going into the rallies, but he didn't give them any money. And where he did give them money, what happens with super PACs is that they have to pay at a different rate than candidate rates. And so by going in late, he was paying the highest price. So not only did he not do much, it was minimized because it didn't buy as much. Um, and I think that was unfortunate. I think that was unfortunate. I want to respect everybody's schedule. Uh, most of you already have your books. Some of you don't, and it's going to sign. But we have additional copies, $20 a book. And as we approach Christmas, if you want to send a strong message to everybody on your Christmas list, I'm for doing something to combat polarization. I can't imagine a better Christmas gift than a signed copy of this wonderful book, A Mutual Respect. So, Ed, thanks for coming. Can I say one last thing? Sure. So I, I did one of these events in New York City uh, on Friday. Um, and it was at the Union League Club, which is the oldest Republican club in the country. Um, and they had a book, book fair with 40 authors, and um, they had 500 people come through. Um, every one of you were polite and respectful, and it was so nice being in Texas. Um, uh, uh, I actually had two women at different times, they weren't together, who walked up to the booth, looked at the book, and said, it ain't going to happen. Uh, they didn't say ain't. They said, it isn't going to happen, and put the book back down, turned around, and walked off. Um, and so um, thank you for the reception today. I really appreciate it. After reading Ed Goas and Celinda Lake's new book that covers all aspects of today's political polarization, I feel more hopeful that there are things we can do to start bringing down the barriers in our nation's house divided. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember... As my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with the bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.